Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank all my listeners for listening. And also thank the contributors to my podcast who are executive producers. Candice Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger. And Ms. Aida, psychic and author of Hoodoo Cleansing Protection Magic. My binaural production engineer, Damien Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great. And monthly co-host, Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. If you are interested in contributing to this podcast, go to everythingimaginable2020.com and you'll find everything you need there. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is Bridget Finclair. And she has written a book, a novel called Red Dress. And I believe she also has some background in psychology. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you for inviting me, Gary. It's absolutely lovely to be here with you. Thank you. Um, So let's start with the background in psychology first. Um, What got you down um, into the psychology world? I think a lot of people that go into psychology are really searching to heal something in themselves. And that was certainly the case with me. Um, I think I'd ha- I was born into, or I chose, I think we all, the soul chose, chooses its family, quite a challenging family that I was born into. And I kind of pretended everything was okay in my life for a long time. And really it wasn't. I was just pretending it was okay on the outside. And on the inside it wasn't. And then when I was about 30, I had my daughter and I wanted to be a really good mom. And um, I realized that maybe my role models weren't the greatest and maybe I had a few things to look at myself. So I ended up going and having some therapy myself and that got me really interested in the world of, of therapy and psychology and psychotherapy. So I ended up training in, as actually in England as a psychotherapist, um, slightly different to a psychologist in terms of the way that the English system is. Psychologists can go into lots of different areas and is just looking at the psyche as a whole, whereas a psychotherapist is trained to actually deal with people's mental emotional problems. Um, so yeah, that's how what got me into that. At the same time, I always had this kind of alternative spiritual path and these two paths were running in parallel. But it really starts, I think, with realizing that you want to resolve things within yourself. You begin that journey of resolving within yourself, and then you want to help others. And certainly for me, anything new that I've learned, I always want to share that with others to try and make a positive difference in people's lives. So that was a very good way of doing it. So that's what got me on that path in the first place. So how does the spiritual path and your um, psychology path run parallel to each other? I think I kind of kept them separate because psychology seemed to be, or psychology and psychotherapy seemed to be very mainstream, if you like, very normal. Um, 
very uh, rational and scientific in many ways, as that is that pathway. And I think particularly when you first train in psycho psychotherapy, there are certain sort of expectations and rules and regulations that you follow for working with your clients. Um, and then the spiritual side for me was much more the right brain. It was more intuitive. It was more energetic. It was more out there that there was more to life than our five senses. Um, so I always kept them separate at the beginning. And so there would be the sort of the, the psychotherapy, um, working with the psyche, working with um, challenges, mental, emotional health and challenges. And then there'd be the, the, the and, and obviously training to do that to help other people. But at the same time, I think when you're searching for something, that search can go either way. And I think with me, it just went both ways. So there was the search to heal and become whole, if you like, through looking at therapy and what happened in my past and resolving issues that I had um, around, you know, believing in myself or um, feeling that I was creating a lot of chaos in my life. And then there was the other side, which was this more spiritual side, which was saying there's something more to life than my five senses, it's actually something more even than the psychotherapy. And that spiritual path took me on a path of spiritual growth rather than mental, emotional healing. And I kept them very separate. So the spiritual path was the one hand and the, the, the therapy work was the other hand. And then eventually, after quite a few years, um, when I was working in Harley Street, those two things came together because actually there are a lot of alternative approaches to dealing with issues. There's lots and lots of wonderful healing techniques and energetic techniques, and that brings in the spiritual. And towards the end, I particularly think that people who've got big issues in their life, very often it's powerful to take a spiritual path at the same time. Because then you're guided by something bigger than you, by a higher force, if you like. And it all kind of comes together. Would you say that, that there's a point where psychology and spirituality cross is sort of like when you start investigating things like mindfulness and meditation? Because like those practices are like almost like therapeutic without the therapist because you're sitting there looking at your mind and just trying to let those things go. Absolutely, I completely agree with you. Meditation, I think, is probably one of the most powerful practices that any of us can do. And you can almost be your own therapist because you, you, you're detaching from yourself and observing your own thoughts and able to analyze those own thoughts and um, see what's going on. And I think that quietness of the stillness of the mind in meditation allows things to bubble up. You know, people sometimes get very busy with their lives so that they don't have to see what's going wrong with their lives. But when they, you find the stillness, those things bubble up and we can see them. So, yeah, I agree that mindfulness and meditation are very, very powerful tools to self-awareness. And everything starts with self-awareness, really. Whether you're going to go down the path of psychology or psychotherapy, or whether you're going to go down the path of healing and a spiritual journey, what we're after really is wholeness, is to become aware of what's going on in our lives that's maybe sabotaging us, or maybe stopping us living our full potential, or our full joy. Um, and any, any of those tools could start to converge. So for me, there is always this correlation between um, 
the, the spiritual path and the psychology path. I suppose eventually it's all mind, body and spirit, isn't it? Which is like a triangle, keeping all of those things in balance. We need to look after our body, we need to look after the mind, and we need to look after the spirits. And if you can't do one to the exclusion of the others. Um, so I think this is what I found with psychotherapy. It was a little bit too dry. It got deeply into the psyche and the mind without looking at the spirit, without looking at the body. And when, as soon as you start bringing in more spiritual things, you can also bring things in for the body, like Tai Chi or yoga and these sort and, and uh, things like um, lifestyle practices, like drinking water and eating well. And all of these things have an effect because it's all linked. The mind, the body, and the spirit are all linked. And one thing, if you if if your if your body's not um, feeling great, you won't feel great in your mind either. So there's this kind of balancing act that we have to do. So how does energy healing plug into this formula? Interesting question. For me, energy healing was part of my spiritual journey. Um, it was quite early on in those early years when my daughter was very small that I had I met a friend. It was actually she went to uh, like preschool and had a friend and uh, her friend's mum was a Reiki master and her friend's mum was into all that energy healing. And um, so I did a swap with her, actually. I was working in feng shui in those days. This is about sort of... Uh, mm -hmm nearly 30 years ago and I did some feng shui for her house and she said would you like to do reiki and I thought well I don't know well okay I'll do this and that opened something up for me and then from there I went on to learn about other energy healing techniques and also worked with things like yoga and tai chi and qigong to look and worked with energies in houses as well and in buildings and since then have worked with energies in the land and learning how to sense energy so that's what got me into energy healing. It was a path. It's almost like a side effect of going on that spiritual journey. But essentially, we are all energy. You know, we, we come from the quantum field. We come from light, which then if we if we take if we break, we, we look at ourselves as, you know, separate as this body this person that's separate. But actually, mm. if we go down with a microscope into the body, we're, we're not actually solid as we think we are. Um, we're mostly water for a start off. Um, and actually, when we go right the way down to the subatomic level, everything is created from the same thing. Right. And those sub that at that subatomic level is that field which we can shift and change and manipulate in some way energetically through our thoughts, through moving that energy around, whether that's acupuncture or whether that's qigong or tai chi or yoga or breath work or whether that's working with healing or whether it's working with changing our thought patterns, we have the ability to shape reality through the energy of thoughts, feelings and manipulating that energy. And in that space, we can see how energy healing can link in very well with a spiritual path and also with um, personal development and also with the psychology. Hmm. Very interesting. Um, I was thinking, <clears throat> you know, with, with the energy healing, though, I mean, there is some scientific basis to it, 
but not a whole lot. Like, do you ever get conflicted between, you know, what you've learned through psychotherapy versus energy healing? No, not really. I don't see that there is a conflict. Um, in terms of psychology, we're looking at the mind and what happens to the mind, what experiences, what traumas, what events have shaped that mind. Um, and we know that we are shaped, we're deeply programmed and um, conditioned by our childhood experiences, um, whether that's parental experiences or whether it's the time we grew up in or the place we grew up in, the culture that we grew up in, the religion we grew up in, the things that happened to us, all of those things shape us. And, and we have traumas that shape us. And psychotherapy is really looking at unraveling some of that to understand it. So we're really saying there that something that's happened to us, an event, has shaped our mind and our thought patterns, which still run us today. So we can say that we're, it's almost as if we're programmed, like you would program a computer. Um, so that's the sort of psychotherapy side. When we look at energy, um, I think there's more scientific proof of this than we realize. That's the first thing. There's a lot of uh, evidence that suggests that energy um, can be manipulated. For example, if we look at something like remote viewing, which has been studied by, at MIT, or we can look at something like the, Bra the Blue Brain Project, which is a scientific project, which is saying that we have multidimensional geometries within our brain and that they're there for something more than, um, you know, just the ordinary thinking. And we think that that is connected, perhaps, to precognition. We know that people are able to predict the future. Um, people are able to experience things. We know even from a lot of um, healers out there, say somebody like Joe Dispenza was able to completely heal his body after his accident just through the power of the mind. Um, we there have been experiments where, for example, lots of meditators have meditated for a particular period of time, and they've actually measured that that's changed um, what's going on in the world in terms of violence and crime. Um, if we look at Lynn McTaggart with the intention experiment, that's proved that um, when a whole bunch of people get together and intend something, they can actually physically change. For example, the crime rate in an area of a, of, a, of a major city. So I think there are there are science is catching up with this. Um, even things like the double slit experiment, where is with quantum physics is says that the observer makes a difference. It's whether it's observed as a particle or a wave makes a difference. So we do know that there's consciousness in the universe, and that consciousness can be shaped by our thought patterns and those thought patterns are really just energy. Everything is a vibration, so everything is an energy. Wow. So even if we go back to um, Einstein and uh, we, e equals mc squared, that's energy. So um, I think that science has probably got more proof of this than perhaps we think. I agree completely. Um, so how does how did all this you know, your book is like a, is a novel. Um, so how does all this tie into your book and like, how did the book begin? Oh, that's a great question, Gary. So 
I was working a lot with intuition and I did a training in England in 2012 where I was learning how to tap into my intuition at will and create from an intuitive space. And one of the things that kept coming up was that I was going to write a book and I kept ignoring it. And just prior to that, I had a friend who was very psychic, um, really amazing friend who was on that spiritual path with me. And I'm still in touch with her now. She's in London and I'm in Cape Town, but I'm still in touch with her. And she used to say to me, you're going to write this book. And she'd say it very matter of fact. And you go, she'd go, when you write your book, <laughs> and I would kind of dismiss her a little bit because I was too busy to write a book. But in the back of my mind, I kind of kept thinking, I need to think about this book. And then when I'd finished this intuitive training, another friend of mine from Australia um, said to me, you know, you're going to write a book. So I thought, okay, this is two people now telling me I'm going to write a book. I finished this intuitive training and part of that intuitive journey was to come to South Africa. Now, I'd never been to South Africa in my life. So I came to South Africa and that's really where I was able to sit back and think about this book and what do I want to write. And what I kept getting intuitively, because I do work with my intuition a lot, and I would tap into my intuition and tune into that and meditate with it. And I kept getting over and over that you need to write a novel, um, which was a bit scary because I'm not, uh, up until then, I wasn't a writer of novels. I used to write many years ago, um, before I became a therapist, before I became a mother, um, I used to work in public relations, so I used to write articles and press releases, and I was quite used to writing all kinds of things, but not fiction. So it was quite a scary thing, but I kept getting, no, you're going to write fiction. So then I thought, okay, if I'm going to do this, what's this book going to be about, and what's my reason for doing it, and who is my reader? And I wanted to share all the pearls of wisdom that I've kind of gained on this sort of 30-year journey, um, both as a therapist and as um, somebody on a spiritual path and really show people um, how life is and how you can overcome that, how you can overcome obstacles. I think a lot of people in life kind of just carry on with their life going, this is as good as it gets, or there's nothing I can do about this. They maybe feel powerless, or maybe they're doing what they think they ought to do, but they don't feel very happy in that. Or maybe they just keep busy. Or, or maybe they're looking for material success. But um, as many people will say, material excess, success doesn't usually bring happiness. Sometimes it does, but it's normally happiness. You changing something inside, inside yourself that brings happiness. It's not having lots of money or having big cars or big houses um, that bring happiness. So I wanted to show how those markers of success don't always bring happiness, how sometimes people get trapped in dysfunctional relationships, and how sometimes people don't lose sight of who they are and what matters to them, and then feel guilty about that because they feel they should have um, be grateful for what they have. But to really uncover what's going on in a lot of people's minds, I think, in, in the world at the moment, particularly women, so it is kind of more aimed at women, a lot of women find that they're juggling work-life balance. They're juggling family and husband and friends and work, and they burn out and they lose sight of who they are. And that's what happens to the character Katie at the beginning of this book. And what she does is, because she's a therapist, she starts to go and have some therapy sessions to investigate 
and just talk through all of that. Now, I think that's a brave step. A lot of people don't want to admit that there's a problem and go and get help. So I wanted to show that, you know, you can be brave enough to do that. But I also wanted to show that actually the way she overcomes that problem in her life is by choosing a spiritual path. And so it gets... It's, it's a novel and it's fun and it's funny and witty in places and it's a page turner and there's, it can be read on lots of different levels. You can just see it as a woman who's, you know, career mum who's burning out and stressed out and unhappy and dabbles in some woo-woo stuff. You can see it as a story of personal development of her finding herself. Or you can see it as relationship dynamics and quite destructive relationship dynamics in Red Dress. Or you can look at it as a spiritual awakening and you can take it at whatever level you like. But all of the spiritual things within Red Dress are real, they're true, they're authentic and you can go and follow those. So she meditates and it tells you how she meditates and you can follow that. She does yoga, she goes and has a thing called a soul contract reading and you can go and do that, it's a real thing. So it's, she's taking the journey for you. And you can read it just as a story and laugh, or you can go, hey, I'm really interested in this. I think I'm going to take it. But the fact it's a novel means that you can go and have fun reading it. Because I used to think, I'll only read a novel if I'm on vacation, and then I can have fun reading it. Otherwise, I've got to read serious things all the time. But this, you can have fun reading the novel and learn at the same time. And if there's something in there that appeals to you, you can do that. Or you can simply see how she, Katie, takes that spiritual journey and you can choose your own spiritual journey as a result. And that's a journey of awakening, which I think is a really powerful thing to do. Mm. So that's why I wrote the book, Red Dress. So <clears throat> what is it that pushes a woman, or, or, or like the timing, like, like when women sort of crack and have that sort of, I, mean, I guess what a lot of us would consider as like a midlife crisis. What is it that, that snaps them into taking action? Um, that's a great question too. I guess it's the same as what snaps anybody, male or female, into taking action. That There must be more to life than this. But I think particularly for women, um, I like to talk about the heroine's journey. So the heroine's journey... Um, starts with the woman deciding that she wants a life and she wants a career and she wants to kind of go out there and do everything that men do in terms of a career, going to university, getting a degree, creating a career. And so in doing that, she has to kind of um, separate herself out from the traditional role of the feminine, um, which would be nurturing and having children and all of that sort of thing. So she does that and she goes on the hero's journey, actually, which is the road of trial. So off she goes to work and women have been hugely successful and managed to break the glass ceiling and they can have their wonderful careers and do really, really well and be very, very successful. But they're going into a man's world to do that. And they, they, they then are operating in a very masculine way. Now, we all have masculine and feminine within us and we need to get it in balance. But I think what happens a lot with women, particularly career women, is they cut themselves off from their own femininity in order to step into the masculine side of themselves in order to be successful in the outside world. Now, most men who are being successful in the outside world are maybe married and they've got the wife at home is looking after the kids or whatever they've got, or you know, maybe they have some other setup 
for some kind of support and help. But often, a lot of women are trying to do it all. So they end up doing the career, but they also want to have children. So they end up having children and then being the nurturer and the homemaker and, you know, taking on responsibility for the domestic duties. And I think they end up losing themselves because they're giving themselves to their families, to their children, to their husbands, to their friends, um, and still trying to be out there in the world as, with a career. And eventually that's just too much. It's just too much. They lose sight of themselves because their whole life is filled. I mean, I've just been talking to somebody actually last week who's in their late 30s, just said exactly the same thing. She's at a point in her career where she's doing really well, but she's got two young girls and she's feeling stretched in all directions. And that leads to burnout. And I think that's what then women go, okay, that I've made it, but it feels hollow inside. And I'm looking for something more real and tangible and something more fulfilling. Interesting. There's one thing that I believe that women, one thing that really makes women different than men. Like a man in a relationship is usually pretty happy with shelter, food, and security. Women want this other thing called romance. Why is that? I think that men and women are very differently wired. And it's not that one is superior to the other. And, you know, women have fought for equality. And that's great. But we were always equal. And we, but we're complementary. We think about the yin and the yang, you know, that symbol with the black and the white. And in the white, there's always that little bit of black. And in the black, there's always a the little bit of white. Because within each of us, we've got both masculine and feminine. But the the male, the man will carry that masculine energy and the female will carry the feminine energy. And I think for men, masculine energy would, and I don't mean, I'm not talking about gender, I'm talking about masculine energy, the masculine principle, if you like, within the universe, is to take action, is to go out there and take action. So men are about doing, going out into the world and doing. And men react in a very different way to situations. And yes, they want to know they've got a roof over their head and, and that they are, you know, fed and watered and got, got company and all of those things, as you suggested. And I think that's true. And meanwhile, when they know that's okay, then that need is met and they can go out and focus on going out to work and earning the money and being out there. Um, and I think they, men deal with problems in a very different way. They tend to go into their man cave or into their um, their shed or their garage or whatever into their space and get lost in their thing and they think things through and they try and resolve things for themselves. Um, whereas women work in a very different way. Traditionally, women work together in groups. Women have got to think about everybody else because they're the nurturers. They've got to think about the children. They've got to think about their neighbours. They've got to think about their husbands and their mothers and their fathers <laughs> and their friends and their neighbours. And so when women make a decision, it's not just to go out there and be successful or create something. It's much more about connections and interactions. So if a woman has a problem, she'll want to talk it through with all her friends. Um, so she'll look at things in a completely different way. A man will sometimes sit there and logically look at the problem and work out a solution in the way that he might logically look at a car engine and, with a, and find the the, the solution to that. Whereas a woman won't do that. She'll go and talk to all her friends about this problem and then she'll get everybody's um, 
solution. She's very much into nurturing and connecting. And if we think about traditional societies, they often work together. Groups of women would, you know, embroider blankets or make um, quilts or cook great big meals together or would all look after children together. Even if now, if you see mothers at the playground, the kids are all playing and they'll all be sitting and chatting. So I think women have a great need for connection and they have a different system. So um, they want to, for them to feel loved, they want they want connection um, and understanding. They want to be heard. They want to be listened to. They want to talk to you. They want you to listen and go, mm, and yes, and feel so that they feel heard and connected. Whereas a man needs different things to feel to feel loved, if you like. So I think we just operate in very different ways, the way our brains work, the way our psyches are. And sometimes it's just a matter of understanding the other one. I don't know if that makes any sense to you as a man. <laughs> it just sounds like uh, no matter what, men and women are sort of incompatible. I don't think we should be look at it that way. I think we can really, really be compatible, but it takes communication to do that. Because I think it, when a woman understands where a man is coming from and what his needs are, because he's told her what they are, and when she has told the man what her needs are, and he understands why she's doing what she's doing, when they can understand each other, they can grow together. Because then we can get this balance of the masculine and the feminine. And I think we do need that balance. And it is complementary. So it's like night and day, isn't it? You can't just have day all the time or <laughs> night all the time. But night is different to day. You know, moonlight is different to sunlight. But we need both. Rain is different to sunshine, but we need both. And I think it's exactly the same with men and women. Um, we do need both, but we need to be in balance and we need to be in harmony and complement each other. And the way to do that is to, to communicate our own needs to each other. So what causes the breakdown? Is it, when, when a relationship breaks down, is it usually lack of communication? I think the reasons relationships break down can probably be as many as the different relationships there are because the first thing is every single person's relationship is different um, because everybody is different. Although we're all humans and we all have common ground, we are all individual and, and, and uh, unique in a sense. So your relationship or my relationship with my husband can be different to your relationship with your other half. Um, so. So much depends on the two people that are in the relationship in the first place. But I think there's lots of things that can break down a relationship. I think one of those things can be lack of communication and lack of understanding the other person. One person thinks it's this way and the other one thinks it's that way. And they're both right. I love this. I don't know if you've ever heard of the story of the elephant in the dark, where these wise men go and they decide they're going to try and see what an elephant is they've never know, don't know what an elephant is and so they go into this and they're in the dark and there's no light so they decide to go in and feel this thing and they report back well one of them says it's a big fan-shaped thing another one went no 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 it's a trunk type thing like a tree trunk and somebody else went no it's a hose and of course they're all right because we know what an elephant looks like the, the, you know the one's looking at the ear and one's looking at the trunk and one's looking at the leg and they're all right and they're all wrong as well because they haven't seen the whole picture so i think sometimes that's what happens in relationships is you know one person's looking at the trunk and one person's looking at the leg and they're kind of arguing about it without seeing the other person's perspective so this is why 
relationship counseling can be very, very helpful for many, many couples. Sometimes people do love each other, they, but they've gone astray somewhere and now they're at loggerheads and they, they've got into a place where they're fighting. And it's just a matter of working that through and reigniting the love they had. So that's what some people, it is a communication. I think for other people, it's because maybe they've grown apart. If they met when they were very young and they've gone in different directions and maybe one has done some personal development or spiritual development and the other one hasn't, you know, or one has got aspirations and wants to go places and do things and learn things and the other one wants everything to stay as it is. And so over time, they get further and further apart and I think that can be a problem as well. Um, and then... I think as well, sometimes people just marry the wrong person because they're eager to get married or to be with someone and then they realise that's the wrong person. And then finally, I think there are some toxic relationship dynamics and uh, difficult manipulative relationship dynamics which are not healthy. And then one of the person in that one of the people in that relationship will probably at some point find out or realise or understand or grow and to learn that this is not okay and that's about boundaries and sort of thinking hang on a minute this is not right and this is not okay and this is not what I want and if the other person is willing to hear that and make changes that's great but if the other person isn't willing to hear that and make changes that's not okay and that can also be a kind of a marker for a, a relationship breaking down but really I think the list could be exhaustive but certainly mm. communication would be one of them Interesting. So, so what happens with your character? Does your character just sort of just take off and go her own way? Or do they work things out? Well, they want to give too much of the story away. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, the other thing, by the way, is that Red Dress is the first in a trilogy. So there's a sequel. So a lot of the people that have read red dress already okay i love this book but oh my god i want to know what happens next when are you going to write the sequel and i'm about a third of the way through the sequel so it needs to be written so right now the reader won't know exactly what happens to katie in the book but what essentially happens throughout the story of red dress is she's becoming aware she comes she becomes aware that she's unhappy and that things are not right in her relationship and that she's been soldiering on trying to fix it all and make it okay and it's not okay so that i think is the most important thing is that she becomes aware that things are not okay she tries to broach that subject with her husband richard she tries to say to him can we talk she tries to get him to talk get him to go to counseling she tries a lot of different things and he is not open to that at all at which point she goes okay i can't change him i can't get him to listen i'm going to change myself I'm going to look at this myself. Maybe I'm just being ungrateful. You know, maybe I'm just burnt out. And so she's not really sure when she starts on that journey. So she starts on that journey of self-discovery with her friends who are very spiritual and her spiritual path, but also with her therapist who's guiding her through this process. And what she's discovering is that actually Richard, who she's married to, isn't the person that she thought he was. And he's certainly not the person that she married. He's changed a lot um, in a negative way. And she's changed a lot in a positive way because she's a therapist and she's been on a spiritual journey. And they are growing further and further apart. And I think if you read Red Dress, you'll see that they're quite incompatible. 
Um, and so she's trying to resolve then what happens. So I'm going to have to leave it to the reader to find out what happens at the end. Hmm. So what causes a person as they get older to not grow in the right direction or to just stop? You know, like, like in Richard's case, if he changed for the worse, what caused him to change for the worse? Was it not addressing his or or just in general, is it not addressing their past? Is it not getting spiritual? Is it excess of one thing? Again, an interesting question. And I think there's probably, again, lots and lots of answers depending on the person. I think some people, it's just what they're driven by. And I think with Richard, he's driven by power. Everything about Richard is he just wants power. Um, and that's all that drives him. And so his morals, in a way, disappear. His moral compass disappears. He forgets about truth. He forgets about honesty or righteousness or love or compassion. It, there's a bit in the book where he's, you know, we find out that he doesn't really have any friends. He only has acquaintances because he only networks with somebody who can give him something, that can give him power. And even at work, we see he's playing power games. So he's constantly playing power games. So, so for the character Richard in Red Dress, he's just dr so driven by power that he's, he's not honest. That's the other thing. He lies quite a lot. He manipulates and lies. Really, he's got the profile of probably slightly psychopathic or slightly narcissistic. Um, but certainly he's dysfunctional. And he's not, he doesn't really care that he's, well, he's in the grey area as far as his work's concerned in terms of insider dealing and that sort of thing. He's in a very grey area. He's quite dishonest. He's a bit of a liar and he's lost his moral compass. And for me, I think that can be a thing that gets people off track in terms of growing uh, or in terms of, you know, going into a negative direction is that they get fixated with their self. They become very selfish. It's all about them. It's all about the power they're going to get or the money they're going to get. And they don't care who they trample over in, in the, on the way. Now, there's nothing wrong with um, becoming powerful in and of yourself if you're not going to misuse that power and if you're going to use it for good in the world. And there's nothing wrong with being successful and having things if you're not trampling over other people. But there's a difference between somebody who's, say, confident in what they're doing and wants to grow in their work and do good in the world and whatever it is that they be good at what they're doing, um, get better at what they're doing, whatever it is they're doing, um, and make, make, make an honest living for themselves. There's a difference between that and someone who actually tramples over other people to get to the top. So I think it's to do with moral compass. Are they oriented towards their own self-aggrandizement and their own selfish needs? Or are they just confident and making progress, but mindful of other people as well, mindful of more? So I think that's probably one of the reasons that people get kind of make negative progress. And I think in terms of people who get stuck or stop, it might just be fear. Uh, often it's fear that they've on a certain level and then there's a self-sabotage thing which probably does come from childhood or from the past from traumas or traumatic experiences or something in them that just goes I'm not good enough or I'm not enough or I'm not powerful enough or um, 
whatever the, the thing is. And that would be like a self-sabotage thing that actually stops them in their tracks. And then it's about, okay, I'm in a comfort zone, let's stay there rather than growing. Because to grow, you need to step out of the comfort zone and that's scary. So often there's a sabotage. So yeah, I think there's a point where sometimes people just stop growing because they're afraid to step any further. And they don't know how, maybe they don't have the tools. So I think, again, there's lots of reasons, but maybe that's just a couple that we can look at. Hmm. Can somebody like that change? I think anybody can change if they choose to. But every, it's always down to choice. Because I think in the case of Richard in Red Dress, he doesn't want to change. He, he wants to continue um, down that pathway. He's, he's, there's a bit where he's, he says he's rotting from the inside out because he's lost who he is. He's so fixated on this power kick, if you like, or this journey, that he doesn't actually want to make any changes. But I think there's always the opportunity there for him to do so. So there's always the opportunity for him to go, hang on a minute, things are not right in my marriage. Um, you know, Katie is important to me. My children are important to me. Maybe I need to have a look at this. But he doesn't. And I think it's there's an old joke, you know, about psychotherapists and it's how many psychotherapists or psychologists does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer is only one, but the light bulb has to want to change. And that's kind of the crux of it. Um, if we look at even addiction, and now there's a character in Red Dress as well who's a love and sex addict, and he goes into the 12-step the program. It's the same with addicts. You know, An addict can always change, whether they're an alcoholic or drug addict or any kind of addict, can always change, but they have to make the choice themselves that I don't want to carry on down this path. They have to make that choice, and then they have to put the work in. They have to go to the 12-step and go and have therapy and, or go on a spiritual path or make that those changes in their lives. And, of course, we all have free will. So it's up to each and every one of us whether what we want to choose and what pathway we want to choose at every moment. So anything's possible and anyone can change, but they have to want to change. In the case of an addict, for example, you know, like it does start with the desire to change. However, very rarely can they do it by themselves. They need help from other people. They need support. Totally, totally. Um, this is one of my things that I'm quite passionate about is that we need to work together, teamwork and fellowship. We need to work together with each other to support each other. And that's exactly right, that as an addict, that's why they go to 12-step and group therapy, because they need that support network around them. And actually, no man is an island. And I think we all need our group of buddies or our friends or our people around us um, that can help us on our journey. It very much feeds back into the, the Hero's Journey by Joseph Campbell, where the hero never goes on that journey on his own. You know, if we look at, um, say, Harry Potter or um, Neo in The Matrix or, or um, Star Wars or Lord of the Rings, they're all fabulous heroes' journeys. But the hero is never on their own. They've always got those people around them that help them on the way. And that's what we need. We do need to kind of support each other. I agree with you that you can't, it's very difficult at least to do, make those sorts of changes on your own. And I also think, particularly with addiction, often addicts hang out with other addicts because they're all on that same boat, in that same lifestyle. 
Um, and so that is almost impossible to decide that you're not going to be, say, an alcoholic. If you're still hanging out with a load of alcoholics, you, it's not possible to do it. So then you have to step out of your familiar surroundings and all of your, your social network. And that's one of our basic needs in life is to have people that we can relate to and connect with. And so that's about replacing those with another group of people who are all deciding to stay sober, say. Um, and this is the importance of the 12 step in, in having your sponsor and the people around you that you can talk to and that you can call if you're feeling on the edge. Um, so yeah, doing things together is very, very powerful. Then would you say that it, because women are more socially adept than men, it's easier for them to find support and get past those type of obstacles than it is for men? That's a great question. I've never really thought about before, but quite possibly. And I, su I suppose at the end of the day, it depends on what the support networks are. As we said with the addict, you know, if all of your friends are all drinking very heavily, then you're not going to get much support to give up drinking. So it depends on who you're relating to. So just because women are good at networking doesn't necessarily mean they have more support because it depends on the quality of the network, the quality of the people that they're networking with. Because we tend to get into peer pressure if you're in a group. So what is the peer pressure in that group? So it's always about relating to the people who are on the same wavelength of you as you, on the same frequency of you, or next level to you, on the next frequency level to you. Then you can bring yourself up, raise up your vibration. Um, having said that, I do think a lot of women, if they've got a good network of friends that they can talk to, are probably able to overcome problems um, maybe more easily. Although, as we said before, men tend to deal with problems in a different way. Um, so they tend to go off on their own and try and resolve that problem, whereas women tend to talk to other women about the problem. So there's also that gender difference as well. So it's a really interesting question that we can probably go into more deeply. There's probably a lot of different facets to that. Do, do you think um that the world would be a better place and governments would oper operate more smoothly if there were more women involved ah, because of the networking and the communication? I think it's quite possible, yes, that if there were more women in government who were actually genuinely in their feminine and not trying to emulate men, because that's the other problem that we've got. Um, if we look at, say, Margaret Thatcher in England in the 80s, she was the first woman prime minister of the UK, but she was very much like a man. She was one of the men. All of her cabinet were men, and she just was like another man, but she was wearing a dress sort of thing. So she wasn't really in her feminine. She was very, very anchored into masculine energies. I don't think she would have made much difference in that case. And I think we find some women who go into politics are there for the power and are there because of the masculine energy that's there and are in a very much a masculine space and in a masculine role. But I think there are other women who go into politics who want to make a difference, who are there to network, who are thinking about, say, the environment, who are thinking about um, other people, um, who are thinking about the bigger picture and the connections and the relationships. And the more people 
who care, if you like, um, and who are in that nurturing feminine energy, um, I think it could make a difference. At the same time, if you had all of them like that, you might get no, no decisions made. So there's always, a, <laughs> there's always this thing about, I love this phrase, the middle way is the proper way. There's always extremes. You can always have all men governing or all women governing, but the middle way is usually the proper way to have that balance between mm -hmm. the two. Do you think that, you know, the, like, like, for example, like what's happening in Afghanistan with the Taliban, like they're a male-dominated group. Do you think that puts things off balance? Oh, horribly off balance. I mean, what's happening in Afghanistan is absolutely horrific. Um, and the way that women and children as well are being treated is absolutely appalling. And, you know, to us who live in the West, it just is abhorrent and, um, and pitiful. And I don't know, I feel quite powerless sometimes to do anything about that other than pray. Um, but yes, no, it's a very... Uh, aggressive masculine energy that the Taliban are using against not just women and children, but anyone who's not actually singing from their song sheets, which is a very, very selfish perspective um, that's very blinkered and fundamental, isn't it? That's saying, I am right and I have the answers and what I say goes and you've got to do what I say and you've got to do what I do and I can do whatever I like. And it's totally self-centered. Um, whereas Maybe the, ma the feminine way of doing things is more thinking about others, but it's, it's become horribly out of balance in Afghanistan. And I do just pray for the people of Afghanistan at the moment. They're in a terrible situation. It's absolutely awful. Is there any way <clears throat> to integrate all these things? Like we've, we've spent a lot of time talking about ma masculine and feminine energies, or maybe right brain versus left brain type of stuff um how do people find balance or that middle way that you've talked about i think it all comes down to awareness and consciousness because we can't make any changes it's like you said earlier you know can people change if they're on that downwards path well they can but they have to want to change they have to make the choice to change and you can only make the choice to change if you become aware of where, what your position is if you become aware of that programming we talked about in childhood and if you can become aware you know we talked as well about um, arguments between lack of communication between um, couples in, uh, in how, how relationships break down and it's becoming aware um, so for me the first thing is becoming aware and we have to become aware of our own shadow. We have to become aware of our own blind spots. We have to become aware of our own prejudices. Um, and the way I think we do that is to embark on a spiritual path, to raise our consciousness. And we can do that meditation. We talked about that right at the beginning. Um, being still, meditation, mindfulness, they are powerful tools for becoming self-aware of becoming aware for what drives us, what makes us really angry, what makes us really sad, what makes us really afraid. Because I think it's when we go into extremes of emotion that we be begin to maybe act out um, in maybe inappropriate ways. And so how do we do that? We have to become aware. Okay, this made me really angry, but why? 
and what was it about it that made me angry and what can I do to change that and rather than just acting impulsively on that anger I think there is a um, there's a dysfunctional or wounded masculine and there's a dysfunctional or wounded feminine and we need to heal both of them and that's where we get the balance. I don't think we can get the balance until we become self-aware and start to grow in consciousness. And only then, the more aware we become, the more we can heal, the more we become more conscious, the higher the vibration, the more we see. It's a little bit like being in a big uh, apartment block. And if you're on the basement floor or the ground floor, you can't see very much. Um, when you start going up the elevator, stage by stage if you get to the top of that apartment block you can see a lot further and you can see a lot more and it's a similar analogy to the human psyche when we can become more aware we can see a bigger picture we can understand more and that's when we can get that balance in place and find that middle way but the middle way is very much sort of leans into the kind of eastern and buddhist philosophies of um uh, craving and aversion so we crave some things and we want those more and more of them and then there's aversion things that we are averted to we try to move away from and actually we just see that the whole thing is like a waveform that it all passes and if we can just stay in the middle and carry on we'll find that the things that we don't like will pass and the things that we do like will also pass and they come back they pass and they rise and they fall and we just are able to be mindful about that and observe it and not get caught in it and that's another way of finding the middle way. I think mm. people get very, very caught into their emotions and reacting and responding to the very powerful emotions that are within them and also reacting and responding to what's going on in the outside world. And then we can be, feel like we're battered around on the waves of a storm on the ocean. And if we can just be still, we can find that middle way. Um, so, you know, the, the self-awareness and, and taking that kind of approach requires something that a lot of people don't like, which is pain. It's always much easier to, to stick my head in this, or anybody to stick their head in the sand into some type of pleasure or something that makes them feel good and dodge the pain. Um, so, so what would be the motivating factor to even do that? Yeah, um, I think you're right. And this is really part of what's going on in the novel Red Dress is that she is facing those demons, so to speak. She's facing her pain, the truth of what's going on. Um, there's a saying that pain is inherent and suffering is optional. So the pain is there anyway. And then when people stick their head in the sand by getting busy or getting addicted or, you know, watching lots of television or eating badly or drinking or whatever it is they're doing um, the pain is still there and then it goes into a space of suffering and that's where we find Katie at the beginning of Red Dress she's suffering because there's a lot of pain she knows that things are not right in her marriage but she's trying to deny it and put her head in the sand because she doesn't want to face the pain and what's happening is she's suffering now because she's got so busy she's burning out and it's not okay and so she's beginning to the suffering is becoming even more painful than the pain so yes there is pain but it's a little bit like um lancing a boil isn't it you know uh, 
it's very painful and once you've lanced it it's it, it gets it heals and it gets better very very quickly or like if you've got a um a thorn you know for, from a rose or something in your finger and it's really painful but but you kind of keep putting off it because you know that to put the needle in there and pull the thing out is going to be even more painful <laughs> but of course as soon as you face that pain and take the thing out it heals and it feels much better and that's a good analogy for what goes on emotionally and mentally as well it, yes it is painful but when we stand in that storm and face that pain we're able to pull that thorn out if you like we're able to go okay this is painful, now we're seeing it, now we can release it, and now it can heal. So as that starts to heal, it's freeing up more space for more joy. So yeah, we, the, the payoff for facing the pain and going through it is the healing the other side and the fact that life just keeps getting better and better and better. And as we change things internally, we're changing how reality shows up. And I've seen that time and time and time again, with myself on my own journey with friends, but also particularly with clients um, when I was working full time as a therapist in Harley Street, that you shift something in their psyche, it's painful. They'll sit in my office and cry, it's painful for them. But it shifts their reality, how their reality turns up, shows up. Everything starts to change, more joy comes in. Um, not every, nobody's life is gonna be full of joy and fabulous all the time, but if you've got an overarching contentment in life then we can kind of deal with the other things so i think that's what it is it's like getting lots of little kind of thorns out of your side and letting it heal and you get stronger and you get better and the pain doesn't last very long just like taking that thorn out it's a quick thing and uh, then it can start to heal hmm. is that a guarantee i mean what if you pull it out and it gets infected it's i think it's less likely to get infected if you pull it out than if you leave it in, isn't it? Not than if you leave the thorn in, it gets infected. I don't know. <laughs> but I think maybe that might be a fear for a lot of people, you know, is if, if I take this out, I leave this open, gaping wound, how do I know it's going to heal and not get worse? Rumi says the wound is where the light comes in. And I think you just have to take that leap of faith. Sometimes we have to take that leap of faith that we see that other people have faced that pain and it's got better. They've got better. And there's lots of stories. I mean, there's lots of um, autobiographies, books out there, um, people who've healed, gone through that pain, made massive changes, found happiness, um, you know, have gone from, say, being a, an addict or being in a miserable place or going through grieving or having a really bad illness or something, and have gone right the way through to living this incredible life. Um, even if we look at something like, say, near-death experiences and how that completely changes people's perspectives on life, we can see that as people heal their wounds, think life gets better. And of course, there's no guarantee of anything in life. But for sure, if you leave that wound in place, the wound is always there. It's always festering. It's always hurting. It's always keeping you small. It's always um, causing that suffering um, in the background. So in a way, what have you got to lose? It's very unlikely that that wound gets infected. It's hmm. once you've seen the wound and you've taken that thorn out, it's easy then to go, okay, let's clean this. 
um, if it gets infected, you can clean it because you know where it is now. You've looked at it. You've had the courage to look at it. I love that thing about paper tigers. You know, so, um, sometimes we have really terrible fears around things. And then when we look at them, they're not as bad as we thought they are. It's actually the thought of looking at it that's far worse than the looking at it. And it's like there's a saying, you know, that if you, if you worry about death every day, you have a thousand deaths. If you don't worry about death, you only have the one death at the end of your life. But people who constantly worry, are uh, constantly afraid of, um, say, death or pain, they're feeling that death and that pain every day. Because what you vividly imagine, the subconscious mind takes as real anyway. So you might as well go for it and have that leap of faith that things do heal. And I think actually there's something else that's really important in this, and that's that we talked earlier about how our thoughts can shape reality. They're very powerful, what we think, the stories we tell ourselves, the things we tell ourselves, um, the things we think about, the things that occupy our minds. Very, very powerful, and it can create our reality. So if you're constantly telling yourself it's going to be very painful and it might get infected and I might not get better, you're going to kind of create that reality. But the minute you go, I know it's going to be painful, but I'm going to do it because I know I'm going to get better. And I'm choosing to get better. And it goes back to that thing about choice, which is very powerful. I'm choosing to get better. I'm intending to get better. And I'm committing to this. Then magic starts happening. Imagine that you, there was a big mountain and you wanted to climb it. And if you just go, well, it's going to hurt me to climb that mountain and I'm going to get sunstroke and I might fall over and my back's going to ache. And I, you can think of all the reasons in the world why not to climb that mountain. I, I might climb that mountain and I might hurt myself. I might fall off. I might die. You know, I might get to the top and it might be awful. Um, there's, there's a million and one things that terrible scenarios you can think about climbing that mountain. But the minute you go, I'm going to climb to the top of that mountain. It's very empowering because you've made a choice and you go, I'm going to commit to that and I'm intending that. And then maybe you go, OK, well, I need a sun hat and I need some food and I need some decent walking boots and I need some water, but I'm going to make it. And then whatever happens along the way, whatever difficulties and hurdles you might come across, because you've committed to get to the top, you're going to go there and you'll get there one way or the other you'll get there and then when you get to the top it'll be a magnificent view and there'll be a huge achievement and it'll be very uplifting and incredible and i think we can see our lives like that as well that we can make just make that choice to face the pain and to choose that we're going to be fine the other side in fact we're going to be better it's going to be okay and again it goes back to what you were saying about you can't do it on your own you do need other people to help you and possibly if it's a very painful thing that you're trying to face don't do it on your own go get professional help with that so <clears throat> excuse me what is the point to even getting to the top or getting through something if you know you're going to die at the end of life anyway why not just hucker down and wait it out? Okay, so, so if you think about it, whatever way you look at this, it's worth going to the top of the mountain <clears> and making <throat> progress, let's say. Because, you know, if you believe that the soul goes on, which I do, um, that the soul goes on and is eternal, and this is just one of many, 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 many lifetimes, then anything you do in this lifetime is growing your soul and allowing that soul to progress and allowing that soul to learn and grow and become more self-realized, reaching further and further towards enlightenment, further and further towards peace and joy and love. 
So anything that you're doing in this lifetime is helping the soul to move on. Otherwise, you're just going to come back in another incarnation and do it again. And there's a quote as well from Red Dress where she has a soul contract read. And at the end, the woman says, well, you need to change your name. And she goes, oh, well, I don't think I want to do that. Um, and the woman says, well, that would be a pity because otherwise you'd have to come back. And she said, what, for another reading? And she says, no, for another incarnation. So that's one of the things is that we're growing because the soul is growing for the next incarnation as we head to, over many, many lifetimes towards enlightenment, if you like, towards self-realization, towards moving on to something more um, fulfilling. And if you don't believe in past lives or the, or the soul or anything that's very existential, all you believe is we've got this one life and that's it. Well, even if you believe that, then if you've only got this one precious life, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to hunker down in your suffering and batten down the hatches and be in your bunker for the whole of that life? Or are you going to go out there and enjoy the world and enjoy the sunshine and watch the rainbows and watch the waterfalls? Um, you can think of it like uh, a sailor on a ship as well. You know, the sailor, a boat is designed to go out on the sea. Are you going to just be anchored in the harbour where it's safe and you see the same thing over and over all the time? Or are you going to risk weighing anchor and going out to sea? Now, when you go out to sea, it's not always going to be smooth seas. Sometimes you're going to encounter storms or winds. But smooth seas don't make a good sailor. But if you can encounter and get over the storm, then you've learned something, you're growing. And I think when we're growing and we're learning things and we're experiencing new things, it's more fulfilling. Our life is more exciting. It's more enriching. So it's always, a, it goes back to choice. Do you want to um, live small um, and hunker down and not really experience the world or growth or do you want to go out there and take that risk and that doesn't i don't want it to sound as if that's got to be a big thing that you do it might not be a big thing you do it might be a small thing you do it might just be a small thing around say getting better relationships we talked about relationships earlier mm -hmm. or finding the work that you love or the or the tribe of people you like to hang out with or the thing that where you lose track of time i mean when people are in flow and they lose track of time it's very uplifting and very um, uh, revitalizing to, to be in the flow, to be in that moment. It's exhilarating and it's lovely, but you're only going to do that if you stretch yourself a little bit and you find what it is that makes you go into flow, that makes you lose track of time, that is your passion that you love doing. And that's a search. Awesome. Uh, thank you for all the advice. <laughs> <laughs> it's your um, choice <laughs> so before we wrap this up where can my listeners find you and find your book you can all find me on my website which is www.bridgetfinclair.com and I'll spell my name because it's unusual it's B-R-I-D-G-E-T F for Freddy I-N-K-L-A I R E. So BridgetThinclair.com is my website. And on there you'll find links to where you can buy Red Dress. You'll find information about Red Dress and information about me and also my work, which is the Bone Circle. And if you want to buy Red Dress, it's available anywhere books are sold. You can get it on Amazon, you can get it from Barnes and Noble, any book short bookstore. You can buy it as a Kindle, an ebook, or a paperback. 
Um, and you can also go to the publisher's website, which is johnhuntpublishing.com. And if you search for Red Dress by Bridget Finclair, there's a page there. It'll have the reviews on it, and it has links to where you can buy it. And I'm also on social media. So you can find Bridget Finclair, author and spiritual teacher. That's my author's page on Facebook. I'm also on LinkedIn. I'm also on Twitter. And I'm also on Instagram. So please find me. Also sign up for my newsletter. I don't spam people. Very rare that the letter goes out unless there's some really good news and interesting stuff. Um, because there's only one of me and I just don't have time to, to send it out very often. But please sign up because there'll be information there about forthcoming books, book signings, and the Bone Circle training as well. That's where you can find me. Oh, awesome. I will post uh, links to all that in your notes of this episode so our listeners can find you, get in touch with you, and buy your book. Thank you so much, Gary. That's awesome. Oh, it was a pleasure having you on. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. It's been an absolutely awesome time. Awesome. And hang on for one moment, and I'm just going to play the outro. Remember, everything that it says was for